Hello, everybody. Uh, belated map. Merry Christmas and uh, a happy new year. Welcome to uh, the Next Play podcast with uh, Sean and Arch here. Uh, Sean via remote satellite today. Uh, he's in Dallas, Texas, getting ready for the college football uh, playoff, Alabama, Cincinnati. That should be um, a great game. Hopefully everything goes well there. Um, two things. I think number one, what we wanted to bring to the table today uh, was two great offenses from Kansas and Purdue and two of the premier perimeter players in college basketball, maybe arguably two first team All-Americans that are that are operating on those two teams in, in, in Obagi and, and Ivy. Um, and as we talk about these two teams, you know, how, you know, their offenses are different, similar in the same ways, but also how uh, they can carry them a long way. And uh, they're both final four good teams. And I think both of them are terrific on offense. Um, but before we get into the breakdown, all that, I think let's talk about uh, the elephant in the room. Um, Sean, from your perspective, my perspective, watching college basketball the last week and a half, and then as we head into January, where we're at um, is incredibly obviously disappointing for everyone. Um, it's nerve wracking, I'm sure, for the players and the coaches, the leagues. Uh, but we're at 101 uh, teams that are on COVID pause or a stoppage as we are today. Um, 101 teams that are unable to play at the moment as we get ready to enter conference play. And I think, you know, one of the things that's very unique when you come back from the holiday break in general is trying to re reboot your team, get your conditioning back in a quick order as you get ready to head into conference. Don't lose the rhythm that you had or try to gain some rhythm um, as you get ready to get started. But this uh, completely throws, I think, everybody into um, disarray, you know, as you're getting ready to prepare, are you going to play? Um, we were supposed to play these guys on Tuesday. Now we're playing these guys on Tuesday. Uh, there's a lot that's going to go into the next month. And um, I think, you know, from our perspective, especially take, get your point of view, where we're at right now and what um, staffs, players, teams, trainers, everybody, administrators, leagues, what, what they're going through right now has got to be very challenging. Yeah. You know, the coaches that I've talked to that, you know, I consider friends and, uh, you know, they all have different scenarios, but one, the one common theme that I think is good is it, it seems like, uh, especially when a vaccine is a part of uh, their players, you know, past is that they're not getting sick. The players, the coaches, the symptoms are either asymptomatic or the symptoms have not been uh, nearly as severe as maybe a year ago, year in some change when COVID first came, the vaccine, uh, the booster shot. And so I think that's number one. I think the second part is, you know, I can remember Arch in the, in the summer months starting to look forward to the Christmas break in terms of planning. Who do we play the last game before the break? A lot of people don't realize that the NCAA has a rule that no college team can practice for three consecutive days over Christmas. So take that into consideration. Yeah. You're already yeah. off those three days. So the planning of when you play your game or when the conference you're in gives you the game to play upon your return from the break. When you bring the guys back from the break, I mean, these guys have been at it now. The players and teams, school begins, let's say, late August, 
September. You know, they have three or four months under the belt. They have the grueling non-conference schedule, which at this point is just about finalized, if not completed. Now everybody's pointing towards conference play. It just makes the planning almost impossible. I mean, some coaches have two or three of their key players that just aren't able to be with them, yet they're moving forward with practice and games. There are some programs like UCLA and USC that have met a complete shutdown. No practices, no games, nothing. Games canceled, plus the three-day break. You're talking about a team that's been out for 14 to 7 days that hasn't played a game in three weeks, and now you're getting ready to play them on a Thursday, Saturday to begin conference play. It's just uh, it makes the planning almost uh, irrelevant. And I think, you know, when you talk about uh, coaches having the B plan and, you know, you have to you have to be innovative. You have to be able to deal with the obstacles and the adversity that hits you right now. The obstacles and the adversity, uh, I think, are as prominent as they've ever been in college basketball with with just the. Do I practice? Can I practice? Is he going to practice? Is the game going to be canceled, not canceled? And then how about the reschedule? When does that start up? You put all that in a bucket. I don't think we can judge teams right now about how good they are. I I think it's unfair. Yeah, I mean, I remember a year ago at the exact same time, you know, in the Big Ten, uh, the contingency plan at the time was very nerve wracking about when students would return to campus here in the near couple weeks. We have a window when no one's on campus. Maybe we should try and play as many games as we can in conference because that's the most important games you're going to play, um, you know, while students aren't there. You know, at Indiana last year, students didn't return, I don't believe, till early February. There were some schools that were middle of January. But, you know, as a league, we kind of looked at the window and said, let's see if we can sneak some games in prior to maybe when campuses are getting ready to go through a heat wave of 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 the virus and, 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 you know, positive tests, it could shut a lot more down. So, you know, we played through Christmas last year. You know, I remember being on a bus on Christmas day, driving to Champaign. We played the 23rd Christmas Eve. We were together on campus. Um, Christmas morning, we tested, we got on a bus, we went to Champaign. Um, and then we played the 26th to get two in. And, you know, I'm not sure that it really, you know, nipped it in the bud. Uh, I know the Big Ten was testing every day a year ago at this time, religiously, as was the Pac-12. But because of those protocols that weren't in place this year with daily testing every single day, you're going to have some of these pauses and shutdowns. And the fact that we're seeing so many, to me, January is going to be a test run of who can get through it, who can get healthy at the right time. Right. February, I think you'll have a better feel for you. You felt the progression of teams emerging. Actually, some teams going the wrong direction. It always happens in these non-conference months of November and December. But the planning and the structure and the momentum and, you know, some teams healthy, some teams not healthy, come back from the Christmas break and it's go time. It's not go time right now because there's like Seton Hall and Providence last night. Providence is an excellent team, which we've talked about. So is Seton Hall. But to judge Kevin Willard, his staff, and his team on that game is just fundamentally unfair. They were missing, what, seven players, staff members. They haven't played a game in 17 days. And that's kind of what we're pointing towards. You look at that, the efficiency of that game, it's not what it would have been if everything would have been smooth 
uh, without the, without COVID. But let's let's end arch with how how we began with this, and that is the good news is it seems like when COVID strikes, the symptoms aren't as severe. There's a lot of guys that are asymptomatic. There's a number of young people and players that are moving through it quickly, two or three days. And the health and well-being of the players is number one. Once I think everybody has a feel that, okay, we're all right, then I, I think you, to your point, February will represent more normalcy. And I think we'll get a better understanding of uh, who is who in college basketball. Unfortunately, as teams move forward, I watched Tennessee at Alabama last night. Tennessee's top two players did not play in the game. The game came down to the final possession, could have gone either way. But two weeks from now or four weeks from now, I don't know if anyone will even remember that the two players from Tennessee didn't even play. And that's kind of what we're talking about, right? That you have to be innovative. You have to be able to handle these obstacles and adversity as best you can. And it really can take its toll. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you. I think at the end of the season, resumes and all that stuff, there's going to be some teams that are vying for spots that unfortunately have went through some things without players. Hopefully they'll take that into consideration. But I agree with you. Four weeks from right now, no one's going to understand what happened in the Alabama-Tennessee game other than Alabama won a great conference game at home against a really good team. Boom. And then they're going to move on. And and I think that we, we've said it from day one. It's a big reason that, that we launched this podcast is – just to kind of give our perspective as coaches and players that have been in college basketball, November and December are not warm up months for college basketball. They are crucial. This year, because of the COVID situation, with so much anarchy right now in these first couple of weeks transitioning from the holidays, how well your conference did in non-conference play will really bolster you moving forward. Those conferences, that have done a great job, the Big 12, the Big East, the Big 10, the SEC, those in particular deserve to have the most bids because they have proven from day one that they have beaten the most teams. Yeah, you know, no, no question about it. And unfortunately, there's teams like Louisville that missed opportunities because of COVID. You know, they missed the Kentucky game. That's going to be a huge resume deal for Louisville moving forward at the end when they're evaluated in their ACC play because of where the ACC stands. You know, the Atlantic 10 is another one I've really been looking at. The Atlantic 10 had an up and down non-conference. They have a lot of teams right now that are good, but I don't know how they're going to be viewed at the end of the season because they're going to go through a lot of missed opportunities here in the next couple of weeks. So it'll be interesting, but I think things will shake out. And I think that, you know, some of the teams that have been able to navigate this all the way through and haven't missed games or haven't had guys miss, you know, they're obviously doing something right. And, and we'll see moving forward how it continues to play out. But um, I think two teams, though, as we get started here, as we get ready to go into conference play, we've talked about, you know, offensive efficiency in general. But Purdue and Kansas are two of the two best offensive teams in the country. They are year in and year out. They do it different ways, and they have similar philosophies of working inside, but they also have had tremendous perimeter players um, you know, stand out here early in the year. But um, those two teams, to me, um, year in and year out, have a way of doing it. But this year's two teams with Kansas and Purdue, their offenses can carry them a long way. They have great personnel, and they have great coaches, but – and we look at those two teams, Sean, uh, Kansas in particular, as we get started, um, Abaji, 
you know, um, right now he's playing at an elite level. I mean, he really is. He's probably, if not the best or first team All-American, he's one of two guys that I believe are the best off guards, not true point guards, not combos, but off guards, wing players that, that stand out, him and him and Jaden Ivey is, you know, two of the best. And as we look at, at Kansas and how they build around them, um, you know, I think what we can do is we can talk about Abaji, what he's doing numbers wise, how he's playing, and then look at Kansas offensively, how they're doing things um, and why they're rated so highly right now from an offensive perspective. And, um, you know, let, let's take a look, you know, right now at, at Kansas first, and then we'll bring in Purdue and then we'll talk about the two of them. So first deal up, um, we're going to bring up Kansas here and I think we'll center what we're doing right now around Abaji first, and then you can take them through some of the things that, that we've noticed here about their system as, as the non-conference has played out, okay? Yep. First things first on Abaji, just stop for one second, Arch, if you could stop the clip, is I think the best players that I've coached, you don't need to call a play so they can score. Right. Those players that tend to beg for plays or you look at as having to call their number to create a good shot for them, they're important pieces to a bigger puzzle. The studs, the All-Americans, the guys that are, are, are the best players in college basketball, they score by just playing the game. And that's really what stood out for me in watching Kansas and Abaji here through their non-conference season. A couple of things that are important. One, he shoots almost 50% from the three-point line. He shoots 48% from the three-point line. He shoots an astonishing from two as a perimeter player, 64%. He's 58 for 93 from two, Arch. Yeah. And then he's a 70% free throw shooter. As a matter of fact, if he rises his percentage from the line, you know, I think you, you have arguably uh, maybe the most efficient perimeter player that's playing in college basketball. But when you watch how he does it, and this is what I really wanted to show, just watch how important it is, Kansas's pace and tempo, right? They, they play a, a fast tempo. They're top 30 in the country right now. And it's tough to deal with him because he gets so much in just the freedom and flow of the game, but in particular in, in transitions. You can let them run. Here's their four out, one in flow game. And you see any time that he uses a ball screen, you cannot go under. And Arch, if you could stop it real quick, you and I know you can draw up a lot of good plays on a, on a napkin. And if they involve a pick and roll or any type of on-ball screen, if the player using the on-ball screen can't stop behind the screen and shoot it, he's not a threat. There's no fear of him shooting the ball the play doesn't work. <laughs> and I think when you just look at him and he's not their primary ball handler, but anytime that he uses a ball screen and you run into it, you have a bad switch, which you're about ready to see, or you, you go under, it's in again, he's shooting 50% from three, but he makes everybody else better because of that component. Again, spacing four out one in look, look at Kansas spacing. If you could go back right there. Why is their spacing so so great? They have four perimeter players in the game at one time, but here he is in the left corner, and it's, you have to account for him. As you can see, his man runs in to take away the roll. 
He's irresponsible. And Remy Martin throws a great pass. But you always have to account for where he's at. He's not a one-trick pony either and get to that. But here's strong action. Again, this, this develops against Michigan State in transition as his man runs in to tag the roller. If you give him any type of space, it's in. So when he stops behind screens and just his spacing component, it's amazing what he brings to the table. Now, the last part, and this is where Kansas is at their best, defense to offense, pushing the pace, really trying to get him out in space. I think the analogy that I would use, Arch, is you want a, lot to of, a lot of, if you go back to that last clip, a lot of the football players, football coaches are going to their key skilled players they, they talk about throwing them the ball, getting them the ball in space. You know, a lot of times it's not complicated. It's almost like spacing. And then let's see if they can tackle this guy. Kansas does it for a Baji in transition. There's an advanced pass three, a great pass by Remy Martin uh, up the sideline. Here he is using his dribble, going full court. You know, he doesn't depend on his teammates getting him shots. There he rejects a side ball screen and goes coast to coast, right to left crossover or spin and then boom, he's at, he's at the rim. As you can see, not one set play to this point. Here's your defense, offense. the offense again. Yeah, they get their hands late in the half against Michigan State, watch, it's a quick advance pass. Great players have a way in space of being able to get fouled or score. Here's, one, here's thing about, one. one thing about Kansas defense to offense, you know, it's such a misnomer of playing fast that the guy with the ball's fast. You know, the pass ahead is so, you know, hard to get a team to accept sometimes. I think Kansas does a great job and you can tell because their guys run, they, they know they're going to get it and they advance it as well as anybody early. So you see him here, he's at the rim. The next one, he doesn't have to run to the three point line. Again, he's not a one trick pony. He's not just a three point shooter here. He just outruns Michigan state and that's their Brown. Who's a very good player. Again, spacing. He almost is the point guard on this play. And their two wings go defense to offense. Here's, if you could go back, one of Bill Self's favorites after a timeout underneath out hounds, loves to throw lobs to his best players. This is the first clip of actually Bill Self calling Abaji's number. So a little fake lob there by Brown, a great screen, Michigan State trails, and it's passed to the front of the rim. You know, he's not small. He's not a 6'2 guard. I mean, he's 6'6". He can jump and run. And again, statistically, uh, you see the numbers that we talked about, right? I mean, from behind the arc, but also inside the line. So when you keep going to Kansas, the next phase that I want to show you is, if you could just stop at Arch, is just yep. five clips, okay? What I think they do as good of a job as any team is they blend quick hitting set plays. They love to run them after timeouts and dead balls, but they have this four out one in flow. Right. So, again, you can't really scout the flow. The ball is moving. There's four perimeter players and one big. And yet when they call their sets, they're incredibly efficient. Here's a couple sets here early that you'll see that, it you know, they, they move the ball and they're calling a, a player's number. So a little misdirection. It kind of looks like the flow. And then all of a sudden, if you just kind of stop it here, stop. There's a side ball screen. And now. They put they they use their spacing again three three point shooters on the left side right in particular 
Brown and Abaji is two of them. Remy Martin's a good shooter. So when you look at this side ball screen right here, he has the ability to turn the bend. Why? Because the three defenders have to account for the players they're guarding. As you can see, they're reluctant to run in. And a great cut at the end there by Abaji, another, another real key here. Another, another key when you play Kansas is anytime that, that you start to watch him stand in the corner, especially they're good players. In this case, we're talking about Abaji. They love to back cut him. That's a set play right there. You go one more time. It may not look like a set play, but that's the first media timeout, right, of the second half right there. He's in the right corner, a predetermined back cut lob. It's funny because if you watch Lightfoot and you watch Remy Martin, you know, watch how they lift at yes. the same time. They lift and they, they open up that baseline. So he's calling his number on, the, on, on, on this play right there. The previous play, right, was for a perimeter player on the other side. This may be just out of place. No, you're going to go this again. You can't underestimate him as an individual player. Again, we talked about defense to offense going coast to coast. So we talked about it, the blend of flow but the blend of sets. And this is uh, right here when you look, McCormick is somebody that Kansas really tries to get the ball to. And yet, you know, as he sets screens, their four perimeter players can all take a turn to turn the bend and score, okay? So here's more of their set plays right here, just a couple quick ones. This is when they love to go kind of, and Brown a lot of times, Arch for Kansas right now is playing the four. Right. You could almost call him the four. You have to guard him with your power forward, your four man, but he's an excellent passer. And you see it right here. Both corners old, kind of going high to low. It's one of Kansas's bread and butters. You know, they used Marcus Garrett in this position a lot over the last couple of seasons because he's a very good passer, but it's a quick, you know, four or five ball screen. And there's not much you can yeah. do with that one. So we talked about it, right? We've talked about a boxing in a unique in number of ways he scores the ball. But we also talked about don't sleep on their set plays. So first play, second half against Michigan State, it's a design strong action right after timeout, a high to low pass. Again, they want to utilize McCormick as much as they can. The more he can score and get fouled, the more it complements their four perimeter players. So you see, it's not just flow, it's not just transition or a baji. Again, strong action. If you can go back, a staple in a way they try to get McCormick the ball is they're trying to set that side ball screen, lift the shooter, and then either the shooter takes advantage of it like we saw earlier in this edit, or they're looking to throw back and in. But these are plays, right? These are designed plays, execution, and it's, boy, it's so tough. You see Missouri's dilemma if you go back. Do you want to double him? Do you want to crowd him? Look at the four perimeter players that Kansas has on the court. And right now, this season, they're playing four perimeter players around one big. And as they keep getting the ball into McCormick, the more damage he does, the more he gets fouled or scores as their one inside player the of their offense is because all four perimeter players are skilled and they have a great player in Abaji. So last two is their, is their flow. And again, these are some concepts. They use in their flow. Um, very difficult to guard here. If you, if you go back, there's that side ball screen again, Arch. 
if you go one more time there. There's that side ball screen where, you know, you're worried about the three guys on the other side, the left side of the court. And as you see, they have a little false motion and they're occupying their defender on that, on this wing ball screen right here. When he turns the bend, they're reluctant, they're reluctant to run in. And how many times have we shown the dribbler just goes around the screen all the way to the basket because of Kansas's spacing? Again, right now, Kansas as a team is lethal from two. They're very good at three, and they get a lot of drives. So if you say, you know, what is the way they get drives in, in their flow? Here it is, four out, one in. You know, the ball's going side to side. And then as Mitch Lightfoot runs up to set a screen, look at the hoop. Look at the basket area. No one's there. Remy Martin just rejects the screen, beats his man, and shoots a layup. So they have a driving component. They have a three-point shooting component. When they use ball screens in the half court because of their skill level and spacing, they're very difficult to defend. And, and they really look to get the ball to McCormick more than you realize. I'll just end with this. Kansas as a team is number three in America from two. So when you're playing four perimeter players, and you're number three in America in two-point percentage. Well, they're number six in effective field goal percentage, top 30 in the country from three, and they take care of the ball. They play uh, at a top 40 tempo with a baji on the court and the structure of their sets with their flow. They're a very difficult and sometimes impossible team to defend. Yeah. You know, and it's unique because I think Purdue has some of the same components. Um, they have an unbelievable inside attack. You know, Travion Williams and Zach Eady is a one-two punch. Um, it's 40 minutes of constant um, size, power. But, you know, Jaden Ivey has emerged. You know, as a sophomore, Jaden Ivey has become one of the most dominant players in the country. And, um, you know, I think when you looked at Abaji's numbers, they were staggering. And right with him right now on the season, Jaden is shooting 45% from three, you know, which is up from 25% a year ago. So he's a much different player shooting the threes, much more confident. And he's shooting almost 60% from two as a six foot four combo guard as well. So you're looking at a guy that's very efficient shooting the ball and scoring. Um, and I think, you know, when you add in how he's doing it and then you add in the mix of the set play execution that Purdue has and the way that they handle their inside guys is a very tough thing to deal with. Right now, Purdue's number one in the country in offensive efficiency. So if you uh, think about the two teams that we talked about, Kansas is currently number three. Purdue is currently number one. Mm -hmm. And they're led by these dynamic wing players in Ivy and Abaji. And, and I think the thing that's unique about Purdue is they're number two in America in effective field goal percentage. They're shooting number 45, 41.5% from three, and they're shooting 59% from two. Both are top five. Astronomical. And the thing that's unique about Purdue this year, um, not as unique, but they're number five in America in offensive rebounding percentage. You know, so not only are they efficient in what they're doing, they're smashing you on the offensive glass as well at almost 40% per game. Um, and they're getting to the line as well in, in the top 25 in the country in terms of free throw rate. So they're not one dimensional shooting a ton of threes, only play power ball. 
they've kind of got it all gone. And if you said to me, hey, you watched Purdue for a while here, what's the difference in Purdue this year with the same personnel really than they had a year ago? Purdue struggled to shoot the three consistently in the last couple of years. I, I mentioned that Ivy was at 25%. This year as a team, they're top five in America in three-point shooting as a team. And uh, last year they were 181. So if you want to, what's the big difference? Purdue, multiple guys right now, Isaiah Thompson, 52%, Ethan Morton, 50%, Mason Gillis, 47%, Ivy, 45%, Stefanovich, 44%. And Brandon Newman, who shot 39% as a freshman last year, is only shooting about 35 this year. But you're looking at six players on the floor at one time surrounding those two mountains inside that are shooting over 40% from three. That's a big difference than they've been in a year ago. And I think when you look at Jaden Ivey, um, a lot like uh, Abaji, he, he does it in his own unique way. And I think Purdue gets a lot of credit for being a set play team. But the thing that's different about Jaden Ivey this year compared to a year ago or, you know, in past, a lot like Carson Edwards, they want the ball in his hands off a defensive rebound. One, he's a great defensive rebounder as a perimeter. He does not outlet the ball. He's what we would call a pusher. He's gone. And the second thing is they'll outlet the ball to him a lot as the initiator of their push because of how lethal he is in transition. And what he's doing a lot more of this year is he's shooting the ball a lot like Carson Edwards was on the dribble. He didn't do this a year ago as much, and he's shooting it at a good clip. You can see the interference he calls for the drag here, and that's an NBA top of the key three. And, you know, right now, if you watch him in transition here, he initiates the break, boom, and then he filters back. That's another NBA three. He's shooting 45%. A year ago, he was shooting 25%. There's a big reason why he's huge, huge difference maker for them right now. You can kind of see here as they flow, him shooting the three again as he flows. You can tell he wants the ball, but none of these threes are coming stationary. Everything about him right now and shooting the ball is on the move or off the dribble we're creating. He's not getting a lot of, you know, stationary kick out threes. You can see side out of bounds play right out of, right out of the side out of bounds. If you go under, you already said, going under ball screens on certain guys eliminates the package. If you go under a ball screen, probably a lot like, we watch those clips of Abaji. He is lethal right now in stopping behind the three and making them. Doesn't matter how nice it looks on the napkin nope. when you drop play up or the action, unless the, the player with the ball is a threat to stop and, and score behind the screen, the on-ball screening, the pick and roll action isn't nearly as effective. And one common theme right now that both Ivy and Abaji have in common. And Arch, to, to point out a different a difference in, in the two of them, Abaji is more dependent on his teammates in transition. Mm -hmm. He's running ahead. He's running to corners. He's running for a lob. He, he very rarely has the ball coast to coast. He can do it off of a turnover steal, whereas I think Ivy, he's the guy with the ball, and he's pushing it coast to coast himself. Yeah, and you can see here, things break down in transition, produce a motion team off of a miss if things don't work a lot of the times. If, if Zach Eady's in the game, they're four around him. If Travion's in the game, they can actually go to five-man motion, but you can kind of see the ball's getting swung. And, you know, now, is this the player or the player? This is what he's doing a lot different than he was a year ago 
where Matt's given him a lot of the freedom that Carson Edwards had a few years ago, where he's creating his own and he has the freedom to take a lot of, of these type of shots. That's the difference, I think, in what he's doing right now is he's shooting a high percentage from three. So you can't say back off. You have to find them. You have to do things. But in transition, he's what college basketball's version of what Russell Westbrook looked like at UCLA and early at Oklahoma City. If he has the rebound or he gets the outlet on the push and you can't can corral him or stop the ball, it is it's over. He is not passing. He is all the way to the basket. It is post. It is coast to coast, rim to rim, paint touch to paint touch. You can watch miss shot his ball. It's over. I mean, he is full throttle downhill and he's impossible right now to stop and transition. This clip right here, if you want to say, why would you say Russell Westbrook? There's very few players that I've seen that can create this much ground this fast and this explosive off, off the bounce in transition. I mean, just watch the clip if you want to see what this, what stopping him in transition is like. He's a nightmare in transition. Now he's added the three-point shot. But to me, Purdue's done a great job. And a lot like Abaji off the ball, he gambles, he steals, he's athletic. And he creates a lot of momentum plays for Purdue defense to offense. These are highlight real plays that change the game. They're sort of pick sixes almost. You know, Arch, in, in Purdue, when you talk about March Madness and, you know, can they get to the final four? Of course. Can they win the national championship? Of course. The one different ingredient that they have because of Ivy is getting the easy ones. You know, in March, when the game slows down, good teams and great teams are only remaining on the schedule and the court is neutral. You know, the game, it becomes more five on five. The team that can get those easy ones, a tip dunk, right? Uh, like you're, you're showing right here, a steel coast to coast dunk, being able to catch the ball off the rim and go coast to coast where you're able to get six, eight, 10 points of these easy baskets because of your talent. Ivy gives Purdue this dimension where in the past, I don't know if some of their best teams have always had that dimension. Yeah. And I think that's one of the reasons that Carson Edwards went on a huge run a few years ago, late in the year, they went to the elite eight, they had Virginia beat, but he, he was a guy that on his own, without all the action, with all the good stuff that they create, he could himself make four or five. You're mm -hmm. seeing that now. And this is the curveball When you deal with Purdue, you have an electric perimeter player, who can get his own and obviously he's doing a lot of damage right now in transition, but when they get in the half court, 80% of what they're doing is going to go inside. And they have a number of different ways that they create angles in the post. You know, I could show Travion Williams, catch the ball off the lane and take five dribbles and jump hook as much as you want. He's a good player and he can really pass, but the gift that Purdue gives their big guys is when they catch it, they don't have to dribble. They can lay the ball in the basket. And especially when you have Zach Eady at his size, they do a great job. You can see they run a lot of Iverson cuts, a lot of double Iverson cuts, and it creates one pass and an angle. There's not a whole lot you're going to do with Zach Eady, whether you're behind on the line, up the line, or you're in full front mode when you have 45% three-point shooters at all the positions. And it's one pass, the ball's in, Great pass. And that's the easiest two points you're going to get. And the other thing Matt does a great job of is he used his best passers are always feeding the ball. Yeah. You know what I mean? It was Dakota Mathias a few years ago this year, right now it's Stefanovic. A lot of the times 
but you can see the Iverson to the corner, the double Iverson over the top. Caleb first has a little dummy flare at the top. You can play behind, you can play on the line, but when, it, when that size is in play and they create the angle, there's just nothing you're going to do with, with the big fella. Yeah. Here's another half court against the zone. And again, you'll watch Travion Williams. They do a great job against the zone. You want to play them zone because you don't want to defend. You're in foul trouble. They do just as good of a job of creating the angle. He did it almost before the ball was passed. If you watch Travion Williams on the overload against the zone, side ball screen overload, duck in, watch the angle he created. And Ethan Morton, a lot like Stefanovich, Matthias, he's in the game because he does his job. He's a great feeder right down the chute and one, two points, creating angles and throwing the ball to their front court players without having to dribble. You'll see a different version of the same overload to Edie. You have a, an undercut by Morton, and then you have a quick, you know, elbow to elbow Iverson over the top. It's the same play out of a different alignment, and it doesn't matter what you do when you're this big and you angle. And the only thing their front court players do a lot of time, they don't worry about the play. The only thing they're worrying about is how am I going to get this guy where I need to get him? When the ball hits his hands, do I have the angle? And you can kind of see right here, Gillis goes with a little sloppy flare. You have Morgan cutting to the corner. Boom. And Pick I tell game. you what, Arch, when I watch this, you know, you, you almost get sick to your stomach. You do. You have to play Purdue because, you know, the Jaden Ivey component by itself is a lot. It's a lot. You're talking about one of the premier players, and you could see what he gives them is he gives them pace. Purdue's playing at a faster pace, by the way. They are. Which and a lot of it is because I think in transition, they've given him the get-go. You know, he has it, get it to him, do what you got to do. But he can break you down in a different way. And then obviously where Matt Painter's always been great is when the game's five on five, his execution in the half court, running his sets – getting the ball to his best players in the right position. Uh, nobody's better at that, but he didn't always have the first dynamic with it, which is Jaden Ivey and getting those easy baskets I talked about a little bit ago. I mean, when you're in late March and you're playing for the Sweet 16 to go to the Elite Eight or the Final Four, however many easy baskets you can get will determine a lot of times whether you advance or not. They have a player on their team, regardless of how beautiful their plays are, that can beat you in a different way. And then when you add these plays with that size and execution, that's why, like you said, they're the number one offensive team in college basketball. Feels so like watching. Yeah. I mean, a little different version of what they're getting ready to do here, but you can kind of see, you know, they're overloading anytime he's in the game off a different movement, you know, whether it's Iverson cuts or overloads, but you're going to see a stagger stagger action, which is going to filter with Gillis now filtering as the first stagger screener to the corner. And Morton, their key trigger passer, is going to catch it. And you're going to have the same screen away happening guard to guard. And you can kind of see Butler did a decent job on the entry, but it does get in. And again, it's just, it's over with those overloads. <laughs> so now, now you move a little bit different here with Purdue. What's a second way that they're creating what we call those bingo, like just bingo plays where it's the angle, it's the unstoppable play. To me, Purdue is as good as any in the country right now, utilizing their big players to throw lobs to them. When they move them on the perimeter, they set screens or they receive screens. A lot of the time, it's all fluff to throw the ball over the top for another easy basket. 
and Travion's going to pop right wing. They're going to run their normal action, and you're going to kind of see right here, you know, Jaden Ivey's the screener, and they put their best players, whether it's Carson Edwards, Stefanovic, Jaden Ivey is the screener. They're going to hug them up. If they know you're whipping the screen or cutting over the top to beat Travion to the block, well, they cleared that side out. You whip that screen, your best screeners, your best offensive player. They oh. overload the side in the ball side corner with a good shooter. And you can see Stefanovic, another great post feeder, lob. The play's the lob. It's not the post up. So as much as their inside game is, hey, they got good post players, it's the angles and it's the actions that they're getting these guys the easiest baskets you can get. When Edie's in the game, we used to say it all the time, lob awareness. Every single time that he sets a screen or receives a screen, the play is for him. You can see this is a multiple action. They got you moving off a stagger, and you can kind of see Eric Hunter will curl yeah. off of the first, you know, slice, boom, slice, stagger action. He curls the first. He becomes a screener, and they lob to Edie, which is the easiest play. He's going to get two to four of these dunks a game because oh, he's geez. a Go back to that play right there. One thing that's great, if you press stop right there, if you watch the design of the play, you know, Purdue, their, their guy using the stagger right now, he's a cutter. And when he's a cutter, what your job is guarding him is to chase the cutter, right? To trail, to prevent him from scoring. So he's a cutter. So if you watch his defender, he's trailing, he's chasing him because he looks at him as a scorer. Well, all of a sudden he goes from a scorer to screener so look at his man the guy guarding him can't help on the back screen why because he's wrong or he's chasing the cutter boom it's a great design and obviously if you have somebody that big uh very difficult to defend right so i mean you know that's two versions of when they're on the perimeter as passers and th this is another one right here you're going to see this is a this is one of their babies whether it's side out of bounds whether it's a cross screen or whether it's a down screen, because you, you just saw, you know, Travion pop to the wing, or you saw Zach pop to the top and reverse the ball. So as they're getting ready to move to the perimeter for a catch, their counter is always the reject throw the lob. Yeah. You know, same thing. And, and I can't give enough credit to, to obviously produce designs, but the feeder is always the same on every one of their lob plays. It's Ethan Morton or it's Stefanovic. And they're the one of the keys to guarding Purdue uh, ball pressure. They're, yeah, you ball pressure. They're in the half court and they're running five on five. Man, yeah, it's, all, it's almost to the point where you have to make we, we would say the guy has to right. turn his back in, in, in spots. If they catch it on the wing or they catch it at the top of the key, you have to yeah. jam them. You almost have to make them turn their back, make them a driver, uh, high hands, ball pressure. If you don't have those components, it's difficult. Now, the, the, the last thing that I would say is you got these good post players. You know, how are these other guys going to benefit from all the attention they're going to get? Travion Williams and Zach Eady both are very good post passers. Travion Williams is the best post feeder um, or the post, best post passer that Matt has had. He said that number of times. And Eady's gotten to the point now where he can read the doubles and the spacing and dump it. But this is four, six points a game. Last night against Nichols, their two front court players had 12 assists at the center position. They had 30 assists on 35 field goals in the game. 12 of them came from their center. And it's always the dive. 
You know, it's mm -hmm. always the front court players diving. It's dealing with the post trap. You're going to see another one right here as they create their action. Big fella's going to have it. They're going to run a little stagger magic action and they're going to overload the floor and throw it in. When they throw the ball into them, there's a double, it's a slough, it's, it's the paint, and you can kind of see again the dive. They're constantly moving off the ball, getting easy action. So without really just showing Purdue um, what's making them what they are right now, Jaden Ivey's a much different player in transition than, than, than he's been. He's a nightmare um, rim to rim. And now he's added the component where he's a 45% three-point shooter, more so than, than he was a year ago. And the threes that he's catching, they're, the threes that he's making are playmaker threes. He's making hard ones. Um, and then the, the elephant in the room is what do you do with the post? Well, you have a lot of different ways to defend the post. But I tell you, Purdue's beating you a lot of angle ways, how you play the post. They can beat you on the double. And I didn't even add in the 50 clips that we could have shown those two big guys and their fours first and Gillis in particular, killing the glass. Um, they're beating you a lot of ways, offensive rebounding, post play, three-point line from five positions. And uh, to me, they are the number one offense in the country. And what's it going to take to beat them? I really believe this as I watch them. When they get their draws for the NCAA tournament, if they see an Auburn, if they see a team that's not going to allow them to sort of function and run their system has the best chance of kind of knocking a Purdue off. If you're going to throw a fastball at them a hundred times out of a hundred, I'm telling you, they're going to, they're going to bat a high percentage against your defense with how they call offense and how they run offense. They have a lot of answers. Uh, but, but to me that that's why they're the hardest team to guard um, in the country right now, just in terms of their offensive playmaking ability outside and inside. Well, the other point, just, just just so you repeat it, as a team, they're shooting 41% from three? They're shooting almost 42% from three. They're fifth in the country. If you just did that and you don't have the two big, you know, Herculean players and you don't have Jaden Ivey, if you just – we have a team that shoots 41% from three, you're going to be a very, very good offensive team. I mean, and that's just one component of a number of them. Yeah, they're impressive. It's interesting, Kansas versus them – uh, they're doing it different ways. Kansas is way more four out, one in, much more free flowing and flow, mm -hmm. a little faster pace, uh, and don't have the firepower inside that Purdue has. Don't call as many sets, but I will say this when Kansas calls a set play like Purdue, they execute, they strike you. Yeah, it's going to be really interesting to see, you know, how these teams, you know, kind of go in the Big Ten, but the Big Ten is a fastball league. You know, it's a 95% of the time man-to-man -man league. And Purdue's got some answers against that stuff. And I feel like they're going to they're gonna have a, um, a path to try to win the, the Big Ten and get a number one seed. Kansas, you know, the Big 12 obviously is very, very strong. Um, but you can tell their versatility is built for different types of defenses versus a Baylor, how they're playing. But uh, two really good offensive teams. I think if you add in Gonzaga, they're probably top three offenses in the country. But I, I feel like to me, Purdue's the hardest team to guard because they have a lot of different ways that they can get you. And uh, to play against Purdue effectively, you have to have a couple curveballs, whether you're trapping the post, whether you extend your pressure three-quarter court like Villanova did against them a little bit. You have to have some things that you just break their rhythm. Purdue cannot be in rhythm um, or they're going to they're gonna, they're gonna get you at some point in time with their stuff. So two good, two good programs, obviously two great offensive systems 
that are that are off to good starts. And I think as we finish up today, um, as we wrap up, you know, the podcast here as we head into this. One thing I just me just to kind of put a period on on Purdue, Kansas is I think the other thing you just got to talk about. I think so many coaches, they admire teams that execute. And, and they themselves, you know, if, if I'm a coach and I'm watching Kansas and Purdue, you know, the question I ask is how can I get the group that I'm coaching to play like that, to execute like that? What is it that I, our, our staff can do better? Remember this experience. Yeah. There aren't a lot of first year freshmen running around out there and I don't care how talented they are. And, you know, I'll use Arizona as an example just watching the group a year ago when a lot of those key guys were playing as freshmen, they were, they were good players, but man, they're a much more seasoned experienced player as they go through it a second time. There are a number of players, whether it's Brown or Abaji, even Jaden Ivey, Jaden Ivey's not straight from high school right now. He's gone through, through things. I mean, when you look at their bigs, this is their second year, third year, Travion, right? This is his fourth year. You have talent, experience, you have a system, you have it all kind of coming together. And, and I would just say that part of the answer to what I asked, how do I as a coach get my teams to execute like that? It's the talent plus experience that really allows the system to be the best that it can be. Yeah, and, and Purdue's not playing. They're playing one first-year player in Caleb first, and he's doing a really good job for their team. Uh, but all those other guys are, are in unique roles and – uh, they're all they're they've all played in big games you know they're their second year third year or senior class at Purdue so they got the makings as does Kansas of, of some older guys and some veteran guys so point guard vision arch we, we've talked about St. Bonaventure they remain um, solid uh, we've talked about Colorado State they're on a COVID pause but they are currently still undefeated we talked about St. Mary's, which beat Yale the other night to go to 12 and three as they now enter conference play. And St. Mary's has played as good of a non-conference schedule as their program ever has played. So um, I, I look at us as being three for three. Who's number four in terms of that team that's a little under the radar that we have a great feel for? Well, I think what we were going to do today is probably talk about uh, a more traditional blue blood so to speak uh that isn't maybe as under the radar but it's not as a, it's not appreciated as much is the michigan state uh spartans uh what tom Izzo has done um is, is obviously hall of fame level um but the consistency at which they do it every year year in and year out is remarkable through the changes through college basketball through the departures early entries covid you name it michigan state um, has built their system and, and their style to last. It comes straight from the top with him. But, you know, a year ago they struggled, you know, with COVID and, and they were on the, the, the barrier of are they going to make the tournament. They ended up making the tournament and playing in the, in the uh, first four against UCLA and should have won the game against UCLA before UCLA made their run to the final four. But, you know, Michigan State, you know, at that point in time, I believe was about 25 straight years in a row in the NCAA tournament or whatever it is. And, they didn't break their streak and it was a big deal, but you're looking at over two decades in a row of not missing the tournament. Um, you're looking at, at a program that's won 20 plus big 10 titles. And this year's team came into the season as, you know, really as least heralded as one of his groups in the last 10 years. You know, they weren't ranked in the preseason. 
Um, they didn't have a preseason all-conference player in terms of, you know, Michigan State all-conference Big Ten didn't have one on the roster. They added a couple point guard transfers and some new guys, but they brought back the core of their group. Um, they lost Aaron Henry and they lost uh, Josh Langford, who were two big pieces. But right now, as we normally are, as we head into January, Michigan State's about 11 and two. They're heading into Big Ten play in the top 10 in the country. And they've done it with the with, with a team approach of playing between 10 and 11 guys. And they're a top 10 defense in America. They're one of the best rebounding teams in America. And, you know, from an offensive perspective, they play a lot of guys. So there's some some roster, you know, chemistry issues at times, I think, with the turnovers. But Michigan State is primed again this year to be right there with a top two or three seed. And to me, they'll be the team that if they can beat Purdue to win the Big Ten, it'll be Michigan State. One, because of their depth, and two, because just their culture in terms of, of what they have going on there. The other thing I like about Michigan State is the, the teams that are dual threat. You know, we talk about two-way players in basketball. Yeah. The two-way teams, the team that can beat you on a given night with their defense and a team that can beat you on a given night with their offense. You know, through the long course of the season, you lose the efficiency for whatever reasons. And this year, because of COVID, injuries – rescheduling issues, but Michigan State can do it on both sides. Right now, they're balanced top 25 on both offense and defense, and that's always good when you see one right next to the other because that means uh, they're built to last. Now, they have a good team. As they head into the Big Ten, like I said, um, you know, right now, if their turnover percentage on offense can come down just a little bit, um, as they keep going here, um, they're going to be tough to beat. They're going to be right there um, at the end of the season like they always are. So Michigan State, uh, I don't know if as many teams have been as consistent over time, but I think right now, Michigan State right now has had a very quiet uh, November and December, and as they head into January, they're primed to have another very deep run. Yeah. So and you today, know what? I got, I got Alabama over Cincinnati. Um, and kudos to Luke Fickle for the amazing job he's done with Roll Tide. And the team, the team, the team, Michigan over Georgia. It's Alabama, Michigan for the national championship. I'm down who's, here. Who's I'll your be, pick? I'll be who's your pick notes. to win it all? I'm not there yet. I'll be taking notes, Arch, and, uh, and making sure that I see the intricacies of how things are being done. But Roll Tide. All right, Roll Tide. Well, this is another episode of uh, Next Play. Hopefully you guys enjoyed it. And, um, you know, Kansas and, and Purdue, I think, gave two good looks there uh, this week to kind of, you know, what they're doing and um, look forward to next week as we get ready to do another one. Hopefully conference play gets off to a halfway decent start. Got a lot of teams on pause, crossing our fingers. But I think within the next couple weeks, two, three weeks, end of January, hopefully we have a lot more teams in a rhythm and we're, and we're getting getting going again here towards – um, March. Signing off. All right. Thanks. Thank you.